You are so glorious, Lord, and so worthy of our worship. We ask that you would enable us to worship you right now, together as we worship you in song and in reading and in praying, that now we would worship you through the proclamation of your word. Lord, for all of us, I pray for me. I am sinful beyond my own comprehension. I expect nothing good to come from me apart from your spirit. And for each of us, as we hear your word, Lord, we know our hearts are rebellious and disobedient and dead apart from you. And so, Holy Spirit, we call on you and ask you during this time to proclaim this passage effectively and powerfully through me. By your grace, cause me to say only that which is most true, only that which is best to say, and to say it in the best possible way. And for each of us listening, cause us to worship you and value you by being attentive and focused by having a humble and malleable heart to your word, and most importantly, by submitting to these commands that you give us. Lord, we ask that we would worship you together right now the best possible, and that you would be glorified in the magnificent truths that will be proclaimed from your passage today, and that you would be glorified in impressing these truths on our hearts so that they have their proper effect, so that they lead to an increased love for you, an increased faith in you, an increased fear of you, an increased obedience to these commandments in our lives. We ask, Lord, that through this passage today, you would compel us to love like Christ, to love our brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters, to love the strangers in our lives as angels, and by your grace, to love the sufferers as if we were suffering ourselves. Lord, please cause us to see that all of these commands are pleasing to you because this is the way that you are. Cause us to worship you for that and to be compelled out of a grateful heart because of the glorious kingdom we've received to live lives that are pleasing to you and to obey these precious commands that you give us. We ask that you would make us obedient this morning, that you would cause each and every one of us individually and as a church to love like yourself, to love like Jesus. It's in your name we pray this. Amen. If you don't have your Bibles open to Hebrews 13, please turn there. Right now at Southern Seminary, I'm taking a personal evangelism class with Dr. Timothy Booker. And he gave an example that I actually share with my brother Brandon a few weeks ago that really stuck with me, and I think it's a fitting story to open up the sermon with today. It's a, it's a made-up story. It's an example. He said, imagine if, as a father, he's a father talking to a son, imagine if I told my son to take out the trash. I said, son, please take out the trash. And the son said, thank you so much, dad. I praise you. I love you. You're such a great father. I appreciate everything that you've done for me. Um, your instructions are so helpful for me. Thank you so much, Dad. I love you. And the next day, the trash isn't taken out, and so the father says, Son, please take out the trash. And the son says, You know what, Dad? I'm going to memorize that. I love that commandment. I'm going I'm to commit that to memory. I'm going to put that on a nice, I'm going to put that on a nice backsplash, a nice background. I'm going to post on, on social media. I'm really going to contemplate this command deeply. The next day, the trash is piling over. The dad says again, son, take out the trash. 
And the son says, Dad, your words are, are so convicting to me. That really hit me hard this morning in my quiet time. You know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meditate on that all morning. I, I, I treasure your word. I'm, I'm really going really to commit this to heart. Next day, trash still isn't taken out. The dad says, son, take out the trash. And the dad says, dad, tonight we're having some friends over. We're, we're going to study what you said. We're going to sit down. We're, we're going to talk about this together. I have a friend who's good in the language. He's going to come in. He's going to give us the precise meaning of the words that you've communicated to me. What's wrong with that picture? How do you think the father feels with this son? Is that not such a telling story? Sometimes I feel like I get so tired of, of talking so much about things and, and playing the Christian game when really what lacks so much in our lives is the simple obedience that God as our Father calls us and expects us to have when he gives us commandments. We do pretty much everything that we possibly could with the command sometimes except obey it. We'll study it. We'll praise God for it. Perhaps we'll memorize it. We'll say we're convicted by it. We'll even talk about it in the context of community. But commands, this is a profound insight, commands are meant to be obeyed. Instructions are meant to be followed. Orders are meant to be executed, period. And the reason why I'm starting the sermon with this today is because chapter 13 is a list of commands. It's a list of commands from our Father. And I pray that as we approach this chapter in the book of Hebrews, the last chapter in the book of Hebrews, that our attitude would not be like that of the Son, that instead we would have an attitude that genuinely desires to obey our Father and submit to it. These commands don't come just from our Father, just from an earthly Father, even though commands from an earthly Father would be enough and worth submitting to. These commands come from a Father who, as we heard last week, has given us an unshakable kingdom. And that's the context for these commands. When you heard Tim read through the passage today, it can seem kind of like an abrupt shift from talking about this kingdom we've received to now here's all of these things that we need to do. But it's intentional. If you remember from the passage of last week, reading verses 28 through 29 of Hebrews 12, the author says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. We as believers today in the 21st century have received the exact same kingdom that they have. By God's grace through faith in Christ, we've received an unshakable kingdom. And our response ought to be one of gratitude and gratefulness that compels us to desire to please God, to offer an acceptable worship to God. And this theme continues all the way in chapter 13 with the idea of, of a pleasing sacrifice. Verse 15 in chapter 13 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing. It's a different form of that same word acceptable to God. And in verse 21 it says, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing, also from that word pleasing, in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We're supposed to be grateful because of what God's done. We're supposed to have grateful hearts because of the kingdom that we've inherited through him. And as a result of our deep gratitude, we desire to please God. And chapter 13 tells us how to do that. It answers the question, how can you serve God as a priest? What does your acceptable worship and pleasing sacrifice look like? 
In other words, how can you please God? That's such an amazing question, isn't it? I hope that's a question that you ask yourself all the time. How can I please God? Chapter 13 beautifully flushes this out for us. It provides details for what our grateful response should look like, very practically. It talks about loving others. talks about marriage. It talks about money. It talks about teachings. It talks about obedience to leaders. Today, we're going to look at our love for others, specifically loving others like Jesus. And so here's the main point for you today. Are you ready? It's that you can please God by loving others like Jesus. One of the main ways you can please God is by loving others like Jesus. How does that look? Practically, three points. Love saints as siblings, love strangers as angels, and love sufferers as yourself. You want to love like Jesus? Love saints as siblings, love strangers as angels, and love sufferers as yourself. I hope that this passage will clarify for you our proper response to worship, our proper grateful response, what it looks like. I pray that it will convict you for the ways that we're not doing these things, and by his grace in Christ compel you to do so. So hear the call like the Hebrews did. Don't turn back to the old ways. Choose the right response of grateful obedience to receiving his kingdom. So point one, love saints as siblings. Look at verse one with me. Let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love is a word that you're probably familiar with. It comes from the Greek word Philadelphia, which literally means love of, Phil. That's the the first part. And then brother. The city of Philadelphia, as you probably heard, is sometimes called the city of brotherly love. I don't know how true that is. I've never been there. And given some of the things that have been going on there recently, there might be good reason to, to doubt that. But one commentator said that this love is the love that characterizes siblings. I thought that's a helpful way to, to think about it. How many of you grew up with siblings? How many of you? Okay, so, so most of you have siblings. Did you have good relationships with your siblings? Some of you say, well, brotherly love, based on my relationship with my siblings, that's not the, that's not the kind of thing that I want continuing in my life. If you loved each other and you had a good relationship, I want you to take a second right now. How would you describe that love? What was the love that you had for your siblings like? In writing the sermon, I was meditating on my own relationships with my brothers. And while my relationship with them is certainly not the standard, here's what I came up with. I was trying to think, what does my love for my siblings look like? One thing that I noticed is that it's formed by a special bond. So when you grow up, With your siblings, there's a shared experience there. You share a life together for many, many years oftentimes. You have the same parents who you love. You literally have the same nature, same DNA, same blood dwells in your body. And uh, you can see this, you know, when you get together. I know sometimes when I'm with my brother, since we, you know, enjoy the same things and watch the same shows, we're often quoting from the same same shows in our conversations, and we understand each other that way. There's a special bond because there's so much that's shared with the other person. Brotherly love, I think, is also a friendship-forming love. I would consider my brothers some of my best friends. They were all best men in my wedding. It's an unconditional love. You know your siblings very well. You know the things that annoy them. And you know all of their faults and their weaknesses, but you still care for each other anyway. It's a resilient love. Not only do you know what annoys them and you know what their buttons are, but you push those a lot. 
and you bicker and you get angry with each other. You get frustrated with each other. But you still love them. And you know that they're not going away. I knew when I was growing up that Brandon and Josh couldn't move out. One, because they weren't able to do so. They wouldn't survive on their own. And two, because I knew that they, weren't gonna, that they loved and cared for us enough to desire to have right relationships. Brotherly love is a forgiving love. Brothers, hopefully, don't hold grudges with each other long. They reconcile when there's issues. They cover over each other's offenses. It's an aspiring love. You desire each other's success. I remember I would go out and watch my brothers play baseball, even though I don't particularly enjoy watching baseball that much, especially at the younger ages. We go out to support them. We want to see them successful, and we practice in sports with them. We desire to see them do well in life. It's also an enjoyable love. You enjoy spending time with them. You delight getting to be in their presence. You are in constant communication with them. Even now, we have a group family text, and we'll text each other pictures of of James or of Abby and of Ellie throughout the day and, and be in constant communication with each other in our lives with what's going on. On vacations, you want them there. On holidays, you want them there. It's not right when their presence is missing from the dinner table. It's also a sharing love. You share everything you have. You share your possessions. You share your joys. You share your sorrows. And one thing I also notice is that it's an honest love. I can speak openly with my brothers about pretty much anything, and I don't feel like I have to pretend to be somebody else when I'm with them. I don't have to be fake. I can be who I am because they know who I am and they love me and care for me regardless. And lastly, I think it's a caring love. We're genuinely interested in how each other's doing. We're there for our struggles. We pray for each other. We disciple each other. We care for our physical, our spiritual, our financial, our emotional well-being. And that caring love, when necessary, turns into a sacrificial love. We make sacrifices for them. We give up things for them. And I would say that we'd be even willing to die for our siblings, especially the ones that we really like the most. <laughs> That's what it should be like in the church. Verse 1 says, let brotherly love continue. Literally, brotherly love must continue. He's speaking to the church when he gives this mandate. Can you imagine what that would be like? If the love I just described between siblings, which I hope is, is pretty similar to your experience can you imagine what that would be like if, if we loved each other like that here in the church? If each member had this kind of brotherly love for every other member in the body, what a glorious sight that would be. Why should we love the church like this? The answer biblically is very simple. I hope we know this now after studying community for eight weeks. It's because we are siblings. The Bible says that in Christ we are brothers and sisters. Jesus redefined the family for us. In Matthew 12, he says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. As we learn from the seminar, Jesus identifies his community of followers as a stronger, strong group than physical, biological family itself. That our spiritual brothers ought to be even more brothers to us than the brothers that we have in the flesh. Romans 8, Paul says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. If you're in the Spirit of God, you've been adopted into God's family. You were outside God's family, you were estranged from God, but you're brought in, and now we all have the same Father, we all have the same brother Christ, all united in the same Son, united with Him, united with each other, and the blood that we have is greater than Booth blood, it's the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ that we have in common that binds us together. Now God commands us here to let brotherly love continue in the church because brotherly love is pleasing to Him. And the question I want to ask you this morning with each of these commands is, why is this command pleasing to God? Why is brotherly love pleasing to God and part of our acceptable worship? And my contention and answer for all of these is the exact same. And this is, this is theologically pivotal. If you, if you take perhaps nothing away from the sermon, I want you to, to, to grasp this. These commands are pleasing to God because this is the way that God is. These commands are pleasing to God because this is the way that God is. And the way that God is is pleasing to him because there's nothing more pleasing and more glorious and more beautiful than God himself. If you want to please God, be like him. Or specifically, be like Jesus. God manifest in the flesh. Brotherly love is pleasing because Jesus is the very definition of brotherly love. We heard earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, the author says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. We're all sanctified together and made holy and set apart together as saints. The author says, That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to take on human flesh. He had to incarnate himself so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stepped down into this world. He took on human eyes and human, and, and human ears and human hairs and hands and feet so that he could identify with us, people who are estranged from God, and bring us into God's family. He loved us as brothers even when we were his enemies. And through his love, he made us his siblings. He literally gave up his life for us. He says, no greater love has any man than this, that he gave down his life for his friends. Jesus expressed the greatest love possible for us when he laid down his life for us. And even now, he intercedes for us. Brotherly love in the flesh. We take our cues from our perfect older brother, Jesus Christ. Jesus loved the sinner as a sibling in order to make them sibling saints through him. I think it's fitting that the first way the author says we can offer a pleasing sacrifice to God is to love our brothers and sisters as siblings, to love the saints as siblings. This is so central. Love for our brothers is so central to Christ that John says this in 1 John chapter 4. He says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can't say you love God if you don't love God's family. You can't say you love God if you don't believe God is worth being like. God is the epitome of brotherly love. If you say you love God, then you have to see brotherly love as something worth showing to others too. 
In fact, one of the primary ways that the world knows we're Christians, Jesus says in John 13, is that you love one another. Verse 34, Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Think about that. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Let this continue. It implies that it's already happening in the church. He's saying, make sure it remains. Remain and continue are the same word. If you remember verse 27, chapter 12 from last week, it says, yet once more, the phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He talks about the unshakable kingdom remaining, and then he uses that same word to describe how our brotherly love should remain. In other words, our brotherly love ought to be as fixed and as permanent and as continuous as the unshakable kingdom that we've received itself. Our brotherly love ought to be as unshakable as the kingdom that characterizes it. And so the application question for us, I think, is really simple. Does brotherly love remain here in CPBC? Think back again to the sibling relationship that we talked about earlier and look around at the members in the church right now and ask yourself, is the love that you have for each other here friendship-forming, unconditional, resilient, forgiving, aspiring, enjoyable, sharing, honest, caring, and sacrificial? Is that what it's like for you? Three practical tests. Number one, can you really say anything to the people in this body, and can they say anything to you? Question two, do you desire to spend time with them and be in constant communication with them? Ask yourself that. Question three, are you interested in their needs and actively meeting them? If you've answered yes to those, then I want you to ask yourself, how have you practically done that in the past month? Love is not just a feeling. Love always works itself out in action. It always takes a concrete form of some kind. If you say, yes, I've done all of those things, that's the way that I am with others, then ask yourself, how has that love proved itself recently? And if you can't think of a single occasion, then I would say either one, you don't really have that love or you have it, but it's not nearly as strong as it needs to be in your life. And so in this first point, I hope that in light of seeing what God's done for you, in light of the kingdom that we've received and the gratefulness that we have, that we should respond with worship and seek to please God by loving others like Jesus, by loving fellow saints as siblings. How else can we please God? The author of Hebrews continues on here in verse 2, which will be our second point, love strangers as angels. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In verse 1, the author commanded us to let Philadelphia remain, let brotherly love remain. And here, he says, let Philoxenias remain. And that root phil, which means love of, actually, uh, actually comes up again in verse 5. So we see the author talks about love of brothers. Here he talks about love of strangers. 
That's what the word means here. And then in verse 5, he talks again about love of money. And so this idea of love of kind of brings cohesion to the passage that we have set before us. Literally, the verse says, hospitality do not neglect. Do not lack care for hospitality. Do not be inattentive to hospitality. Do not overlook it. If you were to state it positively, you could say, care about hospitality. Pay attention to it. Be cognizant of it. Be mindful of it. Now, it's fitting. We just talked about this in the seminar. So, hopefully, hospitality is still fresh in your minds. And as we saw in our studies together, there's a cultural gap for us in terms of what hospitality looks like today and what it looked like then. Sometimes when we think of hospitality, we think about having someone over for dinner. And while I certainly think that's a modern implication for us, we know that then, in this commandment, hospitality had additional connotations for them. Andrew Rianteberry said, speaking on hospitality in the ancient Mediterranean world, he said, at its core, hospitality is the Mediterranean social convention that was employed when a person chose to assist a traveler who has away from his home or home region by, by supplying him or her with provisions and protection. Supplying with provisions and protection. What did that look like exactly? In Leroy Martin's article on Old Testament foundations for Christian hospitality, he points to the example of Abraham in Genesis 18 as one of the most prominent biblical examples that's occurred or that's been discussed in the history of discussions on hospitality. And he identifies a number of aspects of hospitality, primarily from Genesis 18. We're going to look at Genesis 18 in just a minute. But here's some of the, the aspects of, of hospitality that, that he brings out from Abraham's example. He says, the object of hospitality is a traveler, not a neighbor and not someone expected. He says, potential guests would be observed closely and, if necessary, questioned in order to determine if they were qualified to receive hospitality. In other words, not everyone was received. And that makes sense, right? Bringing someone into your home could pose a risk to you. It could be a dangerous thing sometimes. He said travelers make themselves known, but normally they do not seek out hospitality. So after coming to attention to the residents, the people there would invite the strangers in. They would extend an invitation. He says the host extends a modest offer of hospitality, and then if the guests accept that, the host has the ability to increase the level of hospitality in either quantity or duration says hospitality is limited for a fixed period of time. It normally includes water for washing the feet, food, drink, rest, and care for any animals. It also includes a guarantee of protection for the guest. And we actually see this demonstrated in Lot's case in Genesis 19. Remember when the angels come visit him? He protects them from the men of the city. He also says that hospitality is given freely. Compensation for the host is not expected, but oftentimes there would be a sense of reciprocity, which makes sense if somebody showed you such a generous act of love, you would probably feel obliged to, in some way, uh, reciprocate that. And then he also says that through hospitality, the host and the guest, who were previously unknown to each other, now enjoy social interaction. The host accompanies the guests as they depart, and hospitality adds to the honor of the host. Now, when people were traveling back then, why wouldn't they just stay in an inn? Why not go to the nearest Marriott or Best Western or Motel 6? Well, during the Greco-Roman period, inns were not as reputable places as they are now. Theft and prostitution were common at inns, and sometimes they were dangerous places. It was also so they could be very unhygienic and expensive, so not great places for people to stay. Being a foreign land could be dangerous, and hospitality showed care 
for vulnerable wanderers. It brought them inside the home. It treated them well. It met their needs and their desires. And then often formed a relationship between those strangers. Job boasts in Job chapter 31, verse 32, he says, The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. Now, in the New Testament, hospitality served an additional purpose. And that purpose was to support the mission of the gospel. Jesus, his disciples, the apostles, and missionaries in the New Testament all depended on the practice of hospitality to carry out their work. We see this in the book of 3 John, where John says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So evangelist missionaries that were going around, they needed a place to stay. They needed provisions to continue to do the work. And it was the burden on the church to be able to provide that for them so that they could carry on the work of their ministry. Now, in Hebrews, it's not clear whether the author is talking specifically about Christians and traveling evangelists or if he's talking about non-Christians, too. I think it's probably the former, but I would definitely say it doesn't exclude strangers. The command in verse 2, again, says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Again, this implies that they knew what they should do. Hospitality was not a uniquely Christian value. It was a broadly held custom in the day. But it is a value that should characterize the church. And I want you to notice here is that Christians have a special reason for practicing hospitality. Notice what it says in verse 2. The reason is, latter part of verse 2, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Some have entertained angels unawares. What that means is that sometimes... They bring in a stranger. That stranger that looked like a human being was actually an angel incognito. Now, there's biblical examples of this, and the author may be alluding to these. He also may be alluding to some extra biblical examples, too. But we see this happen in Scripture with Abraham, with Lot, and also with Manoah, Samson's father, angels visiting in disguise. Remember Abraham in Genesis 18? God comes to him along with two angels, And they're standing there outside of Abraham's tent. And we pick up in the middle of verse 2, Genesis 18. It says, when he, Abraham, saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves into the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And then he moves quickly. He has Sarah make the cakes. He runs to the herd. He prepares a good calf. He got some curds and some milk, and they ate together under the tree. And that's when God promises that Sarah will have a son. And later on, Abraham ends up interceding for the city of Sodom before God. After that, God departs, and the two angels go down to Sodom. And Lot gets another visitation from angels unawares. Genesis 19 says in verse 1, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, 
So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now you know the rest of the story. The rest of the story is not so good. The city surrounds them, and the perverted men of Sodom call to Lot to bring out the men that came in so that they can engage in perverted acts with the men. And Lot went to extreme lengths. He showed the most extreme form of hospitality possible to protect his guests. Verse 6 says that Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. He's willing to give up his two daughters for the sake of the guests that he's brought into his home. This city threatens to do the worst. They threaten to do even worse to Lot than they did to the men. And so the angels pull Lot back into the house. They blinded the men outside. And of course, the angels tell Lot and his household to flee Sodom because God's going to burn the city to the ground. Hebrews says, love strangers as if they're angels. Why? Because they might be. When you love a stranger, you might actually be serving and loving an angel. Have you ever considered that? Bible says it happens. This is a good reason to show hospitality. One, because there may be a greater blessing attached to serving that person than you anticipated. That's the case, at least in all the examples we see in Scripture. Number two, you could be being tested by God to see if you would glorify him. And so when you see a stranger in need, you have an opportunity to glorify God. That's always the case. And then number three, the person you are serving may be far more worth serving than they appear. That's always the case. Though not necessarily in the same way, it's not necessarily an angel that you're always serving. The person that you're serving is always more worth serving than they appear. Now, in light of Hebrews chapter 1, I would go so far as to say that entertaining a human being is far more weighty and magnificent than entertaining angels. The author said in Hebrews 1, verse 14, Are they, angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The Bible says that we, human beings, will be above angels one day. We should be more privileged to serve one another, to serve saints for who Christ died, images of God who will rule the world and and who will rule angels in the age to come. We should be more privileged to serve humans than we should be to serve angels. C.S. Lewis famously said in his essay, The Weight of Glory, he said that, quote, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. In other words, when you realize who the stranger is, an eternal, immortal soul, that if they're saved, Christ literally gave his life for and you recognize that eternally that person will be glorified in a state so magnificent and so incredible, I think we should be even more excited to serve strangers than we would be to serve them if they were angels in disguise. Either way, loving strangers can bring us into contact with the heavenly. And this reality finds its greatest fulfillment not in angels incognito, but in Christ himself being the stranger that we show our hospitality to. When we show hospitality to others, 
the Bible says that we're actually showing hospitality to Christ, that we're showing hospitality to Jesus in disguise. Now, this is profound, and I want to read this to you. You heard part of this read in the service earlier today. Matthew 25, listen to the words of Jesus, starting in verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. They showed him hospitality. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What terrifying words from our Lord. Have you ever neglected a stranger? Have you ever turned down the opportunity to minister to a stranger? Jesus says, I am the guest. Receive him. Show him hospitality. Strangers are always more glorious and wonderful and worth caring for than they appear. Not only because they could possibly be angels, not only because humans are glory soon of themselves, but more importantly, because Christ is incognito in every stranger you meet. You serve Christ when you serve strangers. Now, why is it pleasing to God for us to show hospitality to strangers, huh? Again, same answer as before. It's pleasing to God because that's the way that God is. Jesus is not only the guest, Jesus is the ultimate host. Jesus is the heavenly host. The Bible says that God is the provider for all of creation. Listen to Psalm 104. The psalmist says, You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. 
God is the provider for all creation. But not only is he the host for the entire world, he's the host specifically and in a very special way for his people. Deuteronomy chapter 10 says that God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then it says, Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You yourself were once wanderers. You, were, you yourself were a traveler in a foreign and dangerous land. You were blind. You were lost. You were deceived and darkened in sin. And if you had remained on your own, you would have surely been destroyed. But God comes to you, and he prepares a feast. He provides for us in the wilderness. God provided manna in the wilderness for his people in Exodus 16 and 17. He cared for them in a foreign land as their host. And Jesus recapitulates that in his own ministry. He provides his people with bread and fish for 5,000 in a remote place. Did you know that that's the only miracle that appears in all four gospel accounts? The only miracle that, performed, that, that occurs in all four gospel accounts is the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason why is because that miracle is so essential to his ministry. Jesus came to provide for and to sustain his people, not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. What does the host do exactly? Luke chapter 12, verse 37 says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he, the master, will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. He will come and serve them. Jesus, God himself, will serve you. God will serve you. We see this literally happen in John 13 when Jesus gets down and washes the feet, the dirty feet of his disciples. He physically did it. But not just that. In the gospel, Jesus demonstrates the most extreme form of hospitality possible. He literally gives his life for his guests. What we see Lot do in Genesis 19, Jesus does to the fullest. As Lot stepped outside to protect his guests, so Christ steps outside to protect us. He was consumed for his guests, not from the wrath of sinful and perverted men, but from the just wrath of a holy God. He offers himself up to save his guests, his strangers, unworthy sinners. In fact, the very supper that he offers for them is an offering of himself. He offers us himself with the cup that he gives us to drink. It's his own blood. And the bread that he feeds us with is his own broken body. He feeds the starving stranger with himself, gives himself for the stranger, provides the wanderer a home. He brings the outside in. He brings us all the way in. And his sacrificial hospitality is what we celebrate and commemorate whenever we take the Lord's Supper, as we're going to do later today. We, like Sodom, have been vilely inhospitable to others. We've been hateful to others. And as a result, we've been hateful to God himself. We deserve to be condemned as the goats that Jesus says failed to serve him as the Sodomites who were burned with fire. We deserve to be condemned to eternal fire along with Sodom. But what? Our host brings us in. He makes us righteous by clothing us with his own righteous life. 
He washes our filthy feet. He washes our very souls with his nail-pierced hands. With his own blood, he cleanses us. And he protects us from the wrath of God by stepping outside to take it in our place. And he revives us, weary, dead sojourners. He brings us back to life through his own resurrection and makes us his heavenly guests forever. Not because we deserved it. We did nothing to earn his invitation, but because he is hospitable with a capital H. He does so for all who turn from their sin, acknowledge their sin, renounce it, and trust alone in the heavenly host to bring them in to his heavenly tent. The gospel message is the message of God's hospitality to man. The parable in Luke 14 of the great banquet is such an incredible picture of this. All of those that Jesus had invited originally had excuses for not coming. One said, I bought a field. Another said he had to go tend to his oxen. Another said he was married, and so he couldn't come. And so Jesus turns to the outcasts. He turns to the outcasts, and he invites them in. Luke 14. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. The picture of the great banquet is also a picture of judgment. Those who did not deem it worth coming to Christ turned down his invitation. But the sinners who did not turn out his invitation were welcomed in by the heavenly host. Has Jesus brought you in? Have you feasted on his delicacies? I pray you have. If not, hear his invitation to you today. Receive his hospitality. The host bids you to come. He calls you and your friends and your family and your neighborhood and your coworkers and your community. He calls the whole world to his tent. He says, bring them in. You yourself know what it was like to be lost and then to be found. Call them to him. He bids the nations come to the feast. Luke 13, 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. The prophets anticipated the future ultimate provision of God. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 25, the consummation of us experiencing the fullness of God's heavenly hospitality says, on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Amen. What can you do to thank your heavenly host? How could you ever repay Christ? The answer is you can't. There's nothing you can do to repay him. But there ought to be in your heart, if you're listening at all, a sense of reciprocity for the hospitality that he's shown you. Jesus has shown you the greatest hospitality possible. Now you go show it to him in a very small way. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. This is such a beautiful thought. Leroy Martin, in the article I quoted from above, He talked about the idea of how God created the garden 
as a way to host mankind, as a way to provide for mankind, all his needs. And our hospitality makes our home a place of provision for others. He says, quote, In hospitality, Genesis is recapitulated so that new creation arises from chaos. When we engage in hospitality, we are more than imitators of God or the imaginers of a new way of being. We become participants in God's hospitable life. God's hospitality is exercised to others through you. We have a chance when we meet strangers in need to be like God, to love like Jesus by showing hospitality to strangers. So what does this look like today? You know, perhaps, perhaps it takes a similar form in other places around the world, but here in San Jose, California, we have a lot of nice hotels and restaurants, and most people that are traveling to the area don't, uh, they don't expect to come into somebody's home to stay there. Most of the time, provision and protection are provided in some other way. But as we had talked about in the seminar, one key, I think, for us is this. We need to be asking ourselves, is your home a place that advances the mission of God? Is your home and your table a place of ministry to others? I thought of my wife's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Davis, when I was writing the sermon. They, uh, in many ways, the hospitality that they show to strangers is similar to the kind of hospitality that we saw then. Many of you have, have been to their house. We had our wedding at their house, and uh, the church, Gospel Community Church, was meeting in their backyard for a while. We all went there for the sending service. Uh, and they're very gracious with the use of their home. They've opened up uh, their house to a few exchange students from France and Spain that came and stayed with them uh, for several months. When the fires happened in paradise, there was a woman and her three-year-old son who had to leave because of the fires, and they took them into their home, and they provided a place for them to stay. At least two different church interns have stayed with them for a few months. They currently have another church intern staying with them right now. And I think they've put up missionaries that have been visiting in the area. They've opened up their home and, and brought them in in the past too. Um, I think it's important for us to be contemplating how we can be blessing others with our home. That's a very similar way to, to providing for people that need a place to stay as we saw then. But even more generally, as we talked about in the seminar, our home should be a place that you invite others to, to provide for them and protect them in a meaningful way. For brothers and sisters, you can provide a meal and edify them and encourage them and spiritually protect them. For strangers, the home should be a place that you invite your neighbors to and your coworkers. Perhaps, um, perhaps even other types of strangers, if appropriate. Bring them into the home to minister to their spiritual needs and possibly any physical needs they might have as well. Remember that they are travelers in a, in a dangerous land, and many of them don't even know it. Don't just wait for people to come to you. We're called to be proactive in showing hospitality. Always have an open door for brothers and sisters and actively invite people in. Selfishness makes it hard for us to do this. We have to give up a space in our place. We have to share what we have. It oftentimes will involve giving up food and energy and time, Sometimes if we're self-conscious about our place, uh, it can be difficult to have people in or we might feel like it's violating our privacy. Sacrifice is involved, but it's an appropriate response and a worthy sacrifice in light of the hospitality that we've received. And so a few self-examination questions before we leave this point. One commentator asked this. He says, how many people can describe the inside of your home? 
I think that's a fitting question. How many people could describe what the inside of your house looks like? A few other questions I have for you. When was the last time you had a stranger, someone not a family member, someone not from church, over for dinner? When was the last time you had a non-believing coworker or a neighbor come over to your house? How often do you minister to other brothers and sisters in your home? Is your home and your table a place of ministry? Does your dinner table reflect Christ's table? Honestly, ask yourself these questions. Don't just study these commands. Do them. Take it upon yourself to invite someone to your home even this week if you can. Summary, you can please God by being like him, loving strangers the way Jesus loved them. Be compelled out of gratefulness for the kingdom you've received to please God by truly loving strangers as angels. One more way before we close that you can please God. Look at verse 3 with me, point 3. Love sufferers as yourself. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. A few comments on the text. Do not neglect. In verse 2, that's positively framed here as remember. In other words, give careful consideration to, be concerned about, or mindful of. One dictionary said, in no circumstances should we misinterpret this word along historizing or intellectualistic lines. It includes a total dedication to God, concern for the brethren, and true self-judgment. It carries with it the thinking in terms of salvation history and the community which the whole of Scripture demands. In other words, this is a holistic remembering. It involves devotion to God and to others. It's a genuine care for others that ought to result in action. Now, this text refers specifically to those who are in prison. Perhaps some were in prison at that time. Prison, by the way, was a terrible place to be back then. It was dark, it was filthy oftentimes, hot and not well ventilated. Oftentimes, the prisons were overcrowded. Heavy chains could become exhausting for people, and if they were fixed too tightly, it could be a form of torture, cause the skin to, to chafe. It was difficult to sleep. Oftentimes, you'd have to sleep on the floor if there wasn't a pallet available. And the provisions in prison, the food, was just enough for you to survive. And sometimes even that would be withheld, either as a form of torture or execution. Without outside help, it was especially dire. Being in prison was especially difficult. You didn't have people coming in to support you and care for you. No barber's tools were allowed, and so hair would grow long, clothes would disintegrate into rags, and some prisoners even wished to die. Not only that, but given how big of a concern, shame, and honor was back in Mediterranean culture, prison was extremely shameful. As one author talked about, it was a place for social deviance, and imprisonment was, was uh, designed to degrade the prisoner. One person said, quote, it inspired a general and sometimes lifelong revulsion of the prisoner, and quote, even friends and close associates experienced great pressure to abandon the prisoner. How greatly the persecuted at that time needed prayers and needed support. And hence we have the command here to not forget those who are in prison. Oftentimes they were dependent on outside help, on people bringing in uh, provisions for them in order for them to remain healthy and to improve their living conditions. They needed spiritual help to fight against the discouragement and loneliness and despair. Supporting people in prison could be costly though. It could be costly because it, it could be shameful to associate with prisoners. It, revol it involved the giving up of your resources and time, oftentimes in order to get in. Sometimes the jailers would have to be bribed. And at times it could be dangerous to try and serve prisoners as well. 
Uh, we see an example of second century Christians doing this with the imprisonment of a man named uh, Perigonus Proteus. He was a Greek cynic philosopher who was involved with the Christian community for some time, and then he was actually later expelled. But listen to how the Christians tried to aid him in Lucian's account. It says, quote, Everything else that could be done for him, they most devoutly did. They thought of nothing else. Orphans and ancient widows might be seen hang, hanging about the prison from break of day. Their officials bribed the jailers to let them sleep inside with him. Elegant dinners were conveyed in. Their sacred writings were read. What a beautiful picture it is of Christians caring for the imprisoned. Despite the possibility of shame, Paul talks about how, Onis how Onisiphorus ministered to him during his Roman imprisonment. In 2 Timothy 1, Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. We're called to be concerned for those in prison, to pray for them, to encourage them and support them in any way possible, to seek to meet their needs. Now verse 3 says, Remember, not just those who are in prison, but also those who are mistreated. Context makes it seem likely that this is referring to those who are persecuted for their faith. Mistreated harkens back to Moses in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11.24. It also harkens back to the prophets who remain faithful to God's word in Hebrews 11.37. Look at the way that we're called to remember them, though. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. In other words, remember them as if it were you who were suffering. Think about prison. Think about the sufferings they're going through. Imagine what it is like for them and put yourself in their shoes. Then respond accordingly. It's, it's almost like a form of, of the golden rule. When Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 12, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. For those who are persecuted, we must be thinking about their suffering as if it was ourselves who are enduring that suffering and responding by loving them the way that we would want to be loved. In the body here, it's likely not referring to the body of Christ as the church, but simply to our physical bodies. In other words, since we're still in physical bodies, we too are subject to the possibility of sufferings. And so think about what it would be like for yourself. What would happen, what would it be like for you if your body was flogged, if you were stripped of your clothes, if you were rushed by a mob? Contemplate those things. Remember those who are suffering as if it is yourself. You must deeply identify with them. The communal solidarity that comes in sympathizing with each other in the body we heard earlier today from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, where Paul says, if one member suffers, all suffer together, and if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Persecuted siblings are a part of our family, whether they're local here in San Jose or around the world. And it's so pleasing to God when we care for those who are suffering. In fact, Matthew chapter 25, the same passage I read from earlier, Jesus talks about how when we serve those who are in prison, we're serving and ministering to him. Again, why is this so pleasing? The answer, I hope, is obvious to you by now. It's because that's the way that God is. You too were imprisoned at one point, and Christ ministered to you. He sets you free from the bonds of sin and Satan and the world and death. He stepped into our misery and subjected himself to the fallen conditions of this world that he might set us free and take our suffering upon himself. Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He delivered you from your suffering, ministered to you in your bonds. 
So God is glorified, he's reflected, he's greatly pleased when we help the helpless as he did. When we identify with the sufferers and love them the way we would want to be loved and the way we have been loved by Christ. So what does this mean for us today? We face persecution and mistreatment too. You know, sometimes we'll, uh, we'll receive um, some hostility or discrimination from our friends or family or colleagues. Um, we might suffer severed relationships with people over the gospel or perhaps invoke invoke some verbal insults on us. And certainly we should be caring for each other and praying for and supporting each other when this happens. However, more severe persecution, similar to what verse 3 talks about here, is happening to our siblings around the world this very day. And I believe that this verse calls us to remember them. To remember them as if we ourselves were suffering. I was imagining, you know, what would it be like if, if my brother Brandon was was taken away and he was falsely imprisoned because of his faith. And I ignored him. I carried on my life as if nothing was wrong, as if nothing had happened, and disregarded the fact that he was suffering, that he was being persecuted for his faith. That's such a disturbing thought, isn't it? There's something I hope that, that unsettles you about a brother, a sibling, who you love suffering and you not caring. But why is it that I'm okay with brothers I can't see suffering? Why is it that I'm okay forgetting about my siblings around the world who are being persecuted for their faith this very moment? It's so easy to forget about people when you can't see them, isn't it? This is so tragic. I think we, we think so much about ourselves and our own lives that we don't remember our suffering siblings around the world. They need us. And the Bible calls us to remember them. Open Doors, a ministry that seeks to minister to persecuted Christians around the world. They released their 2020 World Watch List, which has the top 50 countries where it's most dangerous to follow Christ. Now, they're including Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants in this. They said in the report that 260 million Christians, 260 million Christians experience high levels of persecution in the top 50 countries. 2,983 Christians, your siblings were killed for faith-related reasons last year, an average of eight Christians per day. 9,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. 3,711 Christians, your siblings, were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. Here are the top five countries I want to read to you from the report. Remember your family. Remember your family in North Korea. Estimated 300,000 Christians suffering under communist and post-communist oppression. If North Korean Christians are discovered, the report says, they are deported to labor camps as political criminals or even killed on the spot, quoting directly from the report. Driven by the state, Christian persecution in North Korea is extreme and meeting other Christians to worship is nearly impossible unless it's done in complete secrecy. Remember your family in Afghanistan. Thousands who profess the name of Christ are suffering from clan and ethnic antagonism. The Islamic Republic of, of, of Afghanistan does not allow conversion from Islam. Christian converts from Islam face heavy pressure from family, friends, and neighbors. Those who decide to follow Jesus do so in secret. Remember your family in Somalia. The estimates are small for our family there. Estimate that only a few hundred in the country, in an entire country, though we're 15 million, a few hundred Christians 
Conversion to Christianity is regarded as a betrayal of the Somali family and clan. If Somalis are suspected of being converts, family members and clan leaders will harass, intimidate, and even kill them. Christians with a Muslim background are regarded as high-value targets by al-Shabaab operatives and have often been killed on the spot when discovered. Remember your family in Libya. 36,200 professing believers. Libyan Christians with a Muslim background face violent and intense pressure to renounce their faith from their family and the wider community. There is no freedom of speech, no equal treatment of Christians, no recognition of the church, and no churches being built. Remember your family in Pakistan. Over four million profess Christ in Pakistan. Historic churches have relative freedom for worship, but they are heavily monitored, and extremists regularly target them for attacks. The last one occurring in 2017, December 2017. Christian churches that are active in outreach and youth work face more persecution. General Christians are regarded as second-class citizens. And lastly, remember the persecuted in Eritrea, in Sudan, in Yemen, in Iran, in India. Remember the persecuted in Syria, in Nigeria, in Saudi Arabia, in Maldives, in Iraq, in Egypt, in Algeria. Remember the persecuted in Uzbekistan, in Myanmar, in Laos, in Vietnam, in Turkmenistan. Remember the persecuted in China. Our siblings around the world face persecution from so many fronts, and yet so much of the time we're so oblivious to the suffering that they're going through. I want to read to you one case study in closing. Open Doors reported a story from Burkina Faso in the country which they say has been struck, quote, by a wave of violence. Christians say they are in a fight for survival. Dozens of church leaders have been killed or kidnapped by violent Islamic militants. Villagers wearing Christian symbols are singled, are singled out and killed on the spot. Churches have been burned down. Thousands of Christians have fled to camps for the displaced or have taken refuge with their friends in safer areas. And they give the story of one woman named Naomi. The name was, was probably changed. I say, quote, Naomi's town in northern Burkina Faso was a peaceful place where the tight-knit Christian community lived alongside their Muslim neighbors. In April 2019, last year, all that changed when Islamic terrorists arrived. Quote, my husband Eli, uh, Eli and I were at home with my, with my children, Naomi recalls. After preparing for his Sunday sermon, Eli told me he was going to go see his friend. Some hours later, we began to hear gunshots everywhere. My children all came to my room and asked what was going on. Let's be calm and start praying, I told them, but my heart was already in my mouth. My husband wasn't far away, but I sensed that he was in trouble. The shooting lasted two hours. When it was over, Naomi waited for Eli to return. Instead, another pastor came to tell her that Eli had been shot and killed. My world came to a standstill. Life became so tough and unbearable. Naomi was now a widow, and she would have to look after her nine children alone. Verse 3 says, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that what that would be like. Of your husband going to visit a friend and not coming home. There's blood spilled in the street. This is not imaginary. This is real for our siblings around the world. And God calls us here to love them as we would ourselves. If you were in their shoes, what would you want your family at Cameron Park Baptist Church to do for you? I think first and foremost, you would want them to pray. To pray fervently. To make it 
a regular part of your prayer life, to have them on their minds, to have them on your hearts. So many incredible resources provide to us by ministries like Voice of the Martyrs and Open Doors, giving us prayer guides so that we can pray specifically and faithfully for the persecuted around the world. Pray for your siblings who are suffering right now. And I would also say that we should seek to support them in any ways we can when opportunities arise, perhaps through wisely selecting ministries we can give to or engaging in writing letter campaigns. Genuine care must result in action. Do you remember the persecuted actively? If not, then I call you to repent today. God calls you to remember those who are suffering. For their sake, they need your prayers. Remember them for your sake, that you might be encouraged by their faithfulness around the world and be convicted for the pathetic ways that we struggle, having a hard enough time even to do simple things like read our Bible or pray or come to church. Our blood's not being spilled in the streets. Remember them that you might be inspired to greater faithfulness and remember them for God's glory. You can please God by being like Jesus, loving the sufferers as yourself. In conclusion, the reason we don't do this, the reason why we don't love like Jesus is because we're selfish. We're so centered on ourselves, we have no room for others. Me, me, me all the time. No room to love our fellow Christians as brothers or strangers as angels or sufferers as ourselves. The solution to our selfishness is to see what God has done in Christ, to be grateful for the kingdom we've received, to be captured by him and to desire to please him. In Christ, we see how these acts are worshipful and pleasing to God since these commands are based on who he is and in him we can be empowered and compelled to do them. Do you want to offer a pleasing sacrifice to God? I pray you do. Then love like Jesus. Live with your life centered on others, not on yourself. These are the first of several commands that will illuminate our service to God. We're going to look at others over the coming weeks. Hear these commands and do them. Remember the example at the beginning. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don't you dare just meditate on these verses. Hear them and do them by God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, we start by asking for your forgiveness for failing to love saints saved by your blood as siblings, for failing to love strangers as if they're as if they're angels, and for failing to love sufferers as ourselves. Lord, all of these things are so pleasing to you because this is the way that you are, and you have loved us like this in each of these ways. Pray, Lord, that you will cause us to see the unshakable kingdom we've received, to be so abundantly grateful that we desire to please you in all of our life, and then to please you by being like you, by loving others like Jesus. Lord, we're completely dependent on your spirit for this to happen. Please convict us, cause us to repent of the ways that we failed to do this, and by your grace, turn and obey your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.